Gracious Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have that strengthens us in faith in the midst of the season of waiting. Help us to be, remain steadfast in faith and grant us all joy and peace as we believe in your Son, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're talking about comings and returns today. So I wanted to, to ask as we start, can you recall a time when you've been overjoyed by someone's return or were you the person who was returning? Can you think of any time in your life when you had a, a return and it just really filled your heart with, with gladness? Yeah, Hans. I just had a son who's been in Okinawa for three and a half years and we haven't seen him. Yeah. He's home right now. Yes, right? So Jonathan was on the other side of the world. You didn't see him for three plus years and then there he is. So yeah, very good. Yeah, Esther. First Sunday after COVID. Oh, yeah. (laughs) First Sunday after COVID, which we didn't come back into church per se, but yeah. Oh, when we were first back here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Homecoming in in its own way. Yeah, very good. Other returns that uh, you remember. Yeah, Janet. When my husband came back from deployment. Oh, how long was deployment? Seven months. Seven months. Yeah. Oh, that's... I, I've known other military spouses and just how hard that is while they're away, but then how overjoyed you are when they return. Yeah. Any others of you? Re- great returns that you've experienced, whether you were the one returning or someone returned to you. There's, you know, it's, it's such a, um, a joyous experience because so many of our um, painful points in life are those separations. And so to have those reunions, those returns, in a way, they're like a foretaste of the new creation and the coming of Christ. Because if what we're looking forward to is that full reunion and reconciliation and restoration, then every time we get just a, a little reunion in this life, it's like a foretaste of that future one. Yes, Cindy. I, I always think that um, when you come back together and pick up right where you left off, yeah. even if it's like 10 years, right. that that's sort of a foretaste of eternity. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, Sandy said, you know, those times when you haven't seen somebody for like 10 years, and then when you get back together with them, you pick up right where you left off. That that is... That's what eternity is. That's what eternity is like. Just keeps, keeps the thread going. Yeah, that's very good. Well, in today's uh, video from uh, Nicholas Thomas Wright, N.T. Wright, he'll be talking more about the second coming. He's going to touch on the rapture as well, so we can discuss that also in our, in our discussion time. Uh, you've got the outline of the video teaching there on your handout. Anybody need a handout before we start the video? Need a couple over here? We've got some more back here. Here we are in the Great Chapel at Auckland Castle, which goes back to the medieval dining hall. That's what this building originally was in the 12th century when it was put up. Because then there was another chapel, an even larger one, over the other side of the lawn. But that chapel was demolished in the early 17th century, and then after the Restoration, when Charles II came to the throne, 
Bishop John Cousin came here as bishop. This is his rather splendid tomb. But he decided when he became bishop that the dining hall should turn into the chapel. So he raised the roof, literally, putting this wonderful ceiling in and all that extra bit up there, refaced the whole of the outside of the chapel with stone from the original chapel and turned this into a remarkable statement, not only about how wonderful it was to have the bishops back again after the Commonwealth period, but also something about the kingdom of God. A lot of people today find that hard to get their heads round because for many people today, the kingdom of God is just about heaven or going to heaven. But in the gospels, the kingdom of God is something that is gonna happen on earth as in heaven. Well, what's that to do with a chapel or a church like this? Answer, many people in John Cousin's day, before and since, really did believe that Jesus of Nazareth began something which was continuing. He began the work of launching God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. And one day they believed Jesus would come again and complete the job and establish his sovereign and saving rule right here. And a house of prayer, of worship, a place where people preach from the scriptures and where they celebrate the sacraments, that for them would be a signpost leading from the original achievement of Jesus to the final consummation when Jesus would return. That then is why a lot of people built churches and chapels the way that they did. But over the last 100 or 200 years, often in Western culture, people have had a very different view of the Second Coming. What they've imagined is that the Second Coming isn't about Jesus coming back to rule and reign here, but about Jesus coming to snatch people away, to enable us to escape from this wicked old world and leave it to stew in its own juice. It's funny to think that when the great organ in this chapel was put in, in 1688, the hymns that they would have accompanied for the first 200 years or so of that organ's life would have all expressed the older hope about God's kingdom coming on earth. But over the last century or two, we've found that many hymns put it rather differently. One of my great favorite hymns from when I was a boy, How Great Thou Art, tells of the goodness of God in creation, the wonderful things that God has done. But then right at the end, it lets us down because for some reason we seem to be ignoring creation now. It says, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, take me away, in other words, from this world to a home somewhere called heaven. What then happens to all that glorious creation? No, in fact, the Bible has a very different vision. When Christ shall come, perhaps we should sing, and heal this world, perhaps even and rule this world. Now that's worth thinking about, and that's what we're now going to do. When Christians say the creed, as in my tradition we do quite a lot, they say at one point that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And in my tradition, most Christians think, but I'm not actually quite sure what that means. What are we talking about when we say that Jesus is going to come again? And so for many people in the background that I came from, 
that was something that you said once a week or once a day, but you really didn't explore because you weren't sure how it fitted anything else or whether it even made sense. Of course, there are many other Christians, particularly but not exclusively in the United States, for whom the second coming of Jesus is the very centre of all that they believe, and they have a well-developed scenario of how that's going to work out in terms of Jesus coming again, riding on the clouds, scooping up all his faithful people into midair and taking them off somewhere else. And then the story diverges into various other interpretations. But that idea of a rapture, a catching up, has caught up the popular imagination in a great many Christian circles. What does the New Testament actually say about all this? Because after all, that's where we go back to if we're going to make any sense of how Christian theology even begins to work. One of the first things we have to say is that all this is part of the big biblical picture about the kingdom of God, God's kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. And at the heart of that, the reason for Jesus coming back is that this is where the kingdom has to happen. That's quite clear at the beginning of the book of Acts when Jesus tells his disciples all sorts of things about the kingdom of God. This is the risen Jesus, of course. And then he ascends into heaven, showing that heaven and earth are now joined in him. But then he sends his spirit on his followers so that they too can be part of this heaven and earth coming together movement until, says Acts, the time when Jesus comes again to complete that whole story. So that should frame for us the meaning of the coming of Jesus coming again after his first coming, his incarnation. And it also means that we have to be a bit careful about how we treat some of the language in the Gospels, which many people regularly quote when they think about the second coming. There's all those references to the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And that's a reference which goes back from passages like Mark 13, all the way into the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel chapter 7, it's like a sort of dream vision, where Daniel dreaming sees these monsters coming up out of the sea to attack the people of God. And then he says, I saw in the night visions, and here was the Ancient of Days coming and taking his seat. And then one like a son of man came on the clouds and was presented before him. Now, if you were just reading that straight, I think you would say that the direction of travel when the Son of Man is coming is that he is coming from earth to heaven. And you know, in Daniel, you would be right. And that is certainly how the book of Daniel was read in the first century, that the Son of Man coming on the clouds is coming from earth to be presented before God. Is there any reason why we should take it any differently in the New Testament? Well, no, actually there isn't. When we read about the coming of the Son of Man, that is, in the Gospels, the vindication of Jesus after his suffering, and not least, his resurrection and ascension, his being presented before God the Father. So we can, as it were, park those particular texts and concentrate on the ones in Acts and the Epistles and Revelation, which gives us plenty to work with, which say, as the angel said to the disciples when Jesus ascended into heaven, this Jesus, whom you've seen go away into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
So saying that those Son of Man texts don't refer to this isn't a way of saying the Second Coming is unimportant. Far from it. It is important, it is central, and indeed, unless you say something like this, you haven't rounded off the whole of the biblical Kingdom of God theology. There are wonderful passages in Paul which go on about this. For instance, in Philippians chapter 3, when Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, at which point many Christians think he's going to say, and so one day we'll go and join Jesus there. But he doesn't say that. He says, and from heaven we await the Saviour, the Lord, the King, Jesus, who will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power which enables him to subject everything to himself. That's the point of the second coming. Jesus is coming back to change everything, to sort it all out, to judge the world in that sense of sorting it out and putting it right, dealing with all the residual evil and transforming everything so that it resounds with his glory. That's what the second coming is, as it were, there to do. The letter to the Hebrews says much the same. Jesus, having once died to deal with sin, will return and appear a second time to rescue those who are eagerly awaiting him. And he'll rescue them not by snatching them away from the earth, but by transforming the earth and them with it. So that's how we can locate all those many passages in Paul and elsewhere, which speak of the second coming in terms of a final judgment. In Romans 2, Paul says that God will judge the secrets of the hearts according to the gospel through Jesus Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we may each receive what was done in the body, whether good or bad. Now, of course, you could preach that in a rather scary way, watch out the judges coming. And no doubt we ought all to be quite sober in our reflection on our own lives whether we're Christian or not, in the light of that final judgment. But the point of judgment is that it's good news. The point of the second coming is that it completes the good news. The good news is God is sorting out the whole world through Jesus. So where does this idea come from about Jesus flying around in a cloud and people being snatched up to meet him and going away somewhere? That's one particular reading of one particular passage in the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4. Paul says, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we believe that through Jesus God will bring with him those who have died. For, he says, the Lord himself, with the cry of command, with the archangel's call, and the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them, to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Now, what is Paul saying there? Paul has a habit, like many vivid writers, of mixing his metaphors. And often when Paul says something very vividly, he doesn't envisage that we would then take each bit and try and make one single concrete picture out of that. Indeed, in the very next chapter, we have a very good example of that, where he says that the Lord is coming like a thief in the night, so it's going to be like a woman going into labour, so that you mustn't get drunk, but you must put on your armour. They've got four quite different images there. And Paul doesn't intend that you should somehow scrunch them all together and think that he's meaning a real thief and a real pregnant woman and real drunkenness and real armour. 
In the same way, though it's not so often noticed, that's what's happening in this passage, this famous rapture passage in 1 Thessalonians. To begin with, Paul is thinking of Jesus coming down from heaven like Moses coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. The imagery is there, the archangel's call, the sound of the trumpet. That's the first image he has. He sees Jesus coming down like Moses to sort out the mess in the people down below. But then he combines that with a quite different image. Yes, our old friend from Daniel 7, which is of the Son of Man being caught up in the clouds. Only this time it's not Jesus, it's us. And so he says we will be caught up to meet him. But what will happen then? Well, here's the third image. Paul lived in a world where an emperor or some great ruler might have gone away to fight a battle to make a state visit somewhere else, but then sooner or later would come back to his home city. And when he came back to his home city, the citizens would go out to meet him. It would be a bit rude if they simply sat in the city gates with their arms folded waiting for him to show up. No, they will go out. And what will they do then? Will they have a picnic out there in the countryside? No. They will royally escort him back into the city, over which he will then continue to rule and perhaps bring his rule to perfection. So Paul is combining the Moses image with the Daniel 7 image with, interestingly, the imperial image. And as with that picture from the next chapter, we shouldn't imagine that he thinks all these would actually, so to speak, look like that when they happen. He is saying that when Jesus comes back, we don't have literal language for describing that, but it'll be something like Moses coming down the mountain with the law, something like us being vindicated gloriously before God after whatever suffering we have gone through, and equally something like an emperor coming back to run his city with his grateful citizens coming out to meet him and escort him back to where he belongs. And note what happens if you read that passage like this. You get what the rest of the New Testament give you, gives you, which is a picture of the second coming of Jesus with a remarkable political significance. Paul is saying here and throughout his writings, Jesus is Lord, therefore Caesar isn't. Now, if you have a rapture theology which says we're all going to be snatched away and live in heaven somewhere, then whoever is running the world at the moment can get on and do it whichever way they want. Really doesn't matter too much. You won't have much of a political agenda except to say, just escape. Escape into spirituality in the present. Escape into some forgotten far-off realm in the future. But if you have the second coming meaning what it means in the New Testament, and I haven't even talked about the book of Revelation, but it's very clear there, it means that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And part of the point of the Christian doctrine of the Second Coming is not to make us careless about our political obligations and the quest for justice and peace in the present. It's a way of saying, look, Jesus is going to come back and bring perfect justice, perfect love, perfect peace, perfect wisdom to the world. But we who already know Jesus, anticipating that Second Coming, we have the responsibility to get on with those tasks as best we can in allegiance to him so that when he comes we will greet him with gladness and be ready for him.
Good deal. Okay, any knee-jerk initial reactions to, uh, to the video? Anything that especially you want to put a pin on or make sure we discuss here? Yeah, Esther. Uh, just the, the idea of when, when he does return, we're going to be with him. Yes. Doesn't, you know, all this other stuff, you know, the way it happens. It's all gravy. We just don't know yep. for sure what it's going to look like. Right. But we're going to be with him yes. from that point on forever. Yep, exactly. And so there's that assurance that so long as I know I'm going to be with my Lord, all the rest of it, we'll, we'll see what happens. It should be cool. But we know that we're going to be with him, and that's what, that's what matters most. Good. Yeah, Hans? Uh, Paul talks about going in, I don't know, in a vision or whatever, to the third heaven. Oh, gosh, yeah, right. And how does that fit in with this? Oh, okay. Uh, we'll see if we can come back to that. that it's, an interesting, it's an interesting topic. I yeah, Sandy. I, I noticed that you didn't reference, uh, I go to prepare a place for you. Oh, good. And, you know, the many mansions and all that. So I didn't know how, do you, do you have a sense of how he explains that? Yeah, I do. Uh, let, we'll, we'll come back to that. That's a good, uh, that's a good reference to have. Yeah. I've, uh, We've noticed with friends that aren't Lutheran, and, but they're Christian, and they spend an awful lot of time on the rapture, right? And you know what's going to happen there. Yep. So many years after this. Right. And I don't. I've never been able to figure out where they get that. Well, I mean, he alluded to it. And we'll we'll talk some more about that. So yeah, that's that's important. Good. All right. Well, let's let's dig in then. We've got uh, a lot to discuss here. Uh, <laughs> So under the discussion section on your handout, number one, the ascension, the ascension of Jesus leaves a story that is to be continued, to be continued. Now, I never used to like to be continued. You know, you're watching your favorite show and, you know, Jerry Seinfeld has a great bit about this where, you know, you're watching your show and you realize Timmy's still in the world. There's only one minute left. They're not going to finish. That's my Seinfeld. It's pretty good, I think. Oh, what's the deal? Anyway. Um, but in this case, it is good news because there is still more to come. So Acts chapter 1 is the account of Jesus' ascension. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Maybe that allusion to the, the Son of Man on the clouds. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? What are you waiting for? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay? This is just so often lopped right off and, and lost. We tell the story, and it ends, in some versions, it just ends with Good Friday. All right, we're forgiven, it's all good. If we go a little bit further, hopefully it goes to Easter Sunday and the resurrection, but then it ends there. It's like, no, we've got to go to the ascension, the, the uh, enthronement of our Lord. Okay, it's good. No, there's more still to come. If you forget and lose sight of the second coming of Jesus, what gets lost? What do we lose if we don't have that uh, attention to and anticipation of the second coming of our Lord? What are some of the things that you think might get lost with that? Yeah. Going home. Going home. Okay, so uh, for him or for us? For the grand union. 
Yes, the grand union. Very good. Yeah. If we don't, if we don't have that vision of him returning, then we're left as orphans, right? And Jesus says explicitly, I will not leave you as orphans. Yeah, Bob. I think it's important to note that the ascension story in Acts 1 is juxtaposed to the disciples' question. Yeah. Can you restore the kingdom to Israel? Right. And to think of what their idea is, that he's going back into Jerusalem yep. to set up basically the mega Solomon throne. Yeah. So the nations will come to Jerusalem, right. basically to a Jewish world. Right. I think he leaves to set his, his kingdom up. Yes. But you might say in a international location, yeah. because the next time he speaks via his spirit, he speaks in every language known to man. Yeah, that's right. That's the first time he speaks after his ascension, and he's <laughs> saying something to us about equal access to the Father. Yes. And I think that's huge, moving from a geographic location to, yep. if you will, a bigger geographical yeah, location. Yeah, exactly. It's the universalizing of the mission. But then it also says in his ascension, the Father gave him the Spirit, and he poured it out on right. his people so that they could be his witnesses. So That's right. there's a whole lot going on in the ascension. There's That's a whole essential lot. for what we're doing right now. You could say that it is essential. It's <laughs> exactly right. You're on the road, man. Feeling the Spirit today, what can I say? <laughs> Any other reflections? What do we lose if we don't have this confidence in the second coming? Yeah, Janet. That we aren't part of the story. Oh, I like that. That we aren't part of the story. But in fact, in another book, um, N.T. Wright develops kind of a five-act way of uh, looking at the story of God. And I can't think of how all he, he sets that out. But the fifth act, so he calls the, the church act of Christ's work and the, the mission to the nations until which will finally conclude with and, and uh, be consummated by his return. But in this time, we're part of the story, right? You and I have a role to play in that proper sense uh, in, in God's mission in the world. Yeah, very good. So we want to keep that. We don't want to lose that. We don't want that to, just to be something, as he said, that we, we utter in the creed, I believe, and uh, that he will come again uh, with glory to judge the living and the dead. That shouldn't just be something you, you utter in the creed and never think more about. It's really vital to our, our Christian hope and indeed our Christian witness, that sense of, of the ascension and his enthronement. So then what about this second coming? Well, he takes pains to point out, number two on your handout, that the direction of deliverance is down. Okay? In other words, it's not uh, so much about us flying up into heaven but instead about of God coming down to here and that reuniting. So we heard this, um, I'll read the second one and then the first one. We heard this in our reading today from Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven, a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay? So it's not about flying away from this creation, but instead God coming down in order to restore and renew it. And similarly, um, going back then to Philippians 3, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, yes, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is true back in the, in the Old Testament with the Exodus, right? God 
hears the cries of his people, and he resolves to come down to deliver them. We confess it in the creed. Um, he, he took on our flesh and came, who for us men and for our salvation, came down out of heaven. Now, is there a sense in which we're just speaking metaphorically here? Like, again, you shouldn't just think of heaven as a place out in the stars and hell is down on the other side of the planet or something. Well, yes, of course. But it, it gets to something fundamental about the nature of our, of our salvation, which is not about us climbing up to God, but instead of God coming down to us. It's true in his incarnation, right, with that camp song that we learned. He came from heaven to earth to show the way from the... Okay. I thought you guys were going to be with me on that, but maybe not. My dad from the cross to the grave. Okay, so it's that, that descent, that coming down to us. It was true in the Exodus. It's true in the incarnation. It's true when the Spirit comes. The Spirit descends, comes down, and it will be true finally on the last day with the second coming of Christ. It's him coming down to us. Yes, Andy? I'm, I'm still sorting out a lot. Yeah, Since please. I was a of a cult that focused on the advent. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of stories with that. But so does this mean that uh, as the same moment our bodies are reconnected to our spirits and we're made new, that the same moment the earth is also yes. made new right at the same time? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, how, how soon, yeah, it's hard to say. But yeah, that's. So we're joined and in a new place. Correct, yes. We don't get, we don't go away. No, that it's, it's the restoration, the recreation of, of God's good world at the same time that we are raised up out of the dust. Yeah, um, that's the kind of the, the biblical picture. We complicate that timeline and um, especially like it's, he, he suggests that kind of rapture theology will, um, taking some things out of Revelation will really complicate it. There's a lot of different things going on, but... At the simplest level, it's the Lord returns, he comes down, raises us from the dead, and restores and renews his world. And everything else is gone. And every, what do you mean by everything else? Uh, evil. Yes. Other. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a kind of, well, that's why I used the metaphor in the sermon I was, as I was thinking about it, that like the, the snake of the skin sloughing off, right? Or you might think of it like this, of like shaking out of, the, uh, of a, a rug. Right? So that the, the dirt, the grime of, of evil um, will no longer, will be purged away, will be burned away, as Second Peter kind of depicts it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Janet. What about paradise? Today you shall be with me yes. in paradise. So today, when he talks about paradise, and I think it was, it might have been two weeks ago, we, we looked at this a little bit. Um, but that's, that's talking about heaven in the sense of where we go, where our soul goes to be with the Lord when we die. So paradise is a resting spot. Actually, it's the word that's used for, um, to translate the garden um, in Garden of Eden, paradiso. Um, so the paradise is the resting place or the interim state of heaven, the soul going to be with the Lord when we die. Um, but that's why what we're looking forward to ultimately is life after life after death. So paradise would be life after death. Resurrection and the re renewal of all things is life after, life after death. Does that make sense? Strangely, yes. Okay, good. Well, you know what? Every, every once in a while, blind squirrel finds a nut. Well, so. I think you said it in, in the sermon today, the great divorce. In the fall, yep. 
if you will, the spiritual dimension of our existence and the universe's existence was severed from the yeah. material. Yeah, that's right. And so when we die, our spiritual person rests in the spiritual realm. Yeah. And my material person rests in this material, material realm. That's right. When he comes again, those two realms are reconnected That's right. and there is no such thing as a spiritual or material that's right. realm. It is the one realm that was like the first creation. Yes. And that's why then the union of body and soul take place. So paradise is just existing in that portion of his yep. realm yep. that's yet disconnected from the yes. material. Yes, that's exactly right. That's perfectly, perfectly put. So that, in, and in the great divorce then, it makes sense why Lewis, as he envisages the, the new creation, it's not less material, it's more material. Um, so for the, the, the newcomers, um, even to step on the grass, it feels like you're um, stepping, on, uh, like, like stepping on pins because it's so, uh, it's, it's super material but it's, because now it is wedded back to God's spirit. Spirit as well, yeah. That's true. No part of death is left. No part of death is left. That's, that's right. So yeah. With life. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. To see color for the first time. Right. Someone who's colorblind. Yes. They put on those glasses and they go. Oh, oh my gosh. Right. Yeah, Tom. Yeah, I think you know these are all wonderful, beautiful explanations, but I, I have to remember I'm still simple and there's no way I can really comprehend. Yeah. All this awesome. Yeah, that's right. We see as in a, as in a mirror dimly, right? And uh, so Lewis, our, uh, N.T. Wright says also, it's like we're looking at signposts into a fog. And so we're, we're, we're groping it, we're getting some vague sense of it, but it's not to say that we'll arrive at the new creation and, and be unsurprised. It, there's going to be a, a joy and a delight that uh, is beyond all knowing. Good, Okay. So then following from this, number three on your handout, that direction is, is down. The future of the faithful is not escape, but escort. Okay, the future of the faithful is not escape, but escort. It's not a matter of finally, uh, with uh, this uh, idea of the rapture, which is just a, a word that literally means a catching up, that we are going to be caught up, bailed out, while everything else goes awry, and then, you know, the, uh, I mean, this whole kind of convoluted thing. Uh, but rather, it's about escorting the king to restore and reclaim his rule in full on the last day. When that usurper, Satan, who in this age is called the prince of the power of the air, and even the king of this world, he will at the last be kicked out, right? This is, uh, this is why J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, like he understands all of this, right? Because you have that same thing where there's the usurping kings, the, the false monarchs, which are, I just want to do that one more time. Boom. <laughs> Booted out as the true king returns. So let's read again this, this reading from 1 Thessalonians 4, which is quite confusing without that cultural context and background that uh, Mr. Wright alluded to. It says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. 
and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. All right. So if, the, if all you had was that text there, it's understandable perhaps that you could construct something like a rapture theology. That what's going to happen, Jesus is going to return, and we're going to be you know, um, elevated out of creation and, and sent up into the clouds. But uh, just to reiterate what, what he said, it was the custom of the time that, that Paul was writing. And indeed, in Thessalonica, modern-day Thessaloniki, this very thing had happened in uh, Paul's day. Perhaps he himself had witnessed it, where there was a special visit from the emperor. Think about what it's like when the president goes, like last year, President Biden went and visited Traverse City, right? They roll out the red carpet. It's a, it's a big deal. Um, even more so when it would be the emperor of the empire would come out. And so you wouldn't just sit there waiting, twiddling your thumbs while you see him coming, but you would, the whole city would go out to meet him. How far would they go out? I'm not sure. But they would go out a ways and meet him and then with royal convoy escort him into the city where he would reign and rule from that place. That's the idea that's going on in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. Go ahead, Sandy. So the... So let's go there, because this is the other text that gets um, invoked with, do you happen to have the 2440? 2440. So go to Matthew 24. So just to, to read the broader context of this, this is uh, in Matthew 24, this is um, Jesus's long sermon and, and teaching on the end times, although including also uh, the destruction of, of Jerusalem, um, which is relevant. He says, uh, starting on verse 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. Okay, so this image and this text becomes the basis for, although I've never read them, the, the Left Behind series, right? Which especially in a, a fiction way developed the theology of the rapture where I think as the book starts out, if I recall, they're on a plane and suddenly there's no pilot flying the plane and half of the people are gone or something like that, right? The idea being that the elect have been raptured, have been taken away, been caught up, and then all the rest of uh, the, uh, the infidels or what have you are, are left behind to just kind of deal with things as they are. Now, what's one problem, if you're going to apply this text, what's one problem with, you know, Connecting that to that, that vision of the, the rapture. Yeah, Anne. Well, it says in the flood, it says that um, people were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. Right. So if you're going to be taken away, it's, it's not, not good. It's not good. Correct. Yes, exactly. So the, the way that the, the rapture is talked about, gets the, the, at the very least, it gets the opposite of what, what Jesus is trying to say here. It's the degenerates that get swept away or get caught up, if you will. It's uh, the elect who, who remain. 
Um, and so there's, there's other issues with that, that kind of rapture theology, but at the most basic level, it just gets the details wrong about who actually is getting taken away. So, okay, but any other reflections about that rapture stuff or questions about that? I'm not an expert um, in it. As you can see, I didn't even read Left Behind for crying out loud. Um, but yeah, go ahead, Bob. Well, because he uses Noah's example, um, it's obvious that that moment is the moment of judgment. It's the moment of judgment, that's right. So it's a consummation. I mean, yeah. it's an end, and if you will, a new beginning. Yes. So it's not like a continuation of some rotten thing going on. Right. It's over. It's a decisive thing. And that, as it continues into chapter 25, this is the point of each of those parables that Jesus then tells, is that you know there's going to be five foolish virgins and five wise, and then, boom, the bridegroom comes, and there's that kind of separation. The king is going to come, and you know, there's going to be the, the resurrection and a judgment, a, a d division between sheep and goats, right? So it's a boom. There isn't this whole kind of, like, he's going to come secretly, because this is part of the, the, the rapture theology. He'll come secretly, snatch some of us away, you know, and all these sorts of things. No, it's a visible public thing. We're waiting not for a second and then a third coming, but just a second coming when he will return. Yeah, man. Revelation 20, verse 11. Yes. It talks about the great white throne from the presence of earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. How does that fit into this? Yeah, so let me flip there. Revelation 20, where are you at? Oh, verse 11. Verse 11. Okay, so this is in uh, chapter 20 talks about, first of all, the, the thousand years. And this fits into it too, um, which sometimes is called the, the millennial reign. And, okay, where, where does this happen? Does this happen after, before the rapture? Um, but for Lutherans and for, I would just say, historic biblical Christians, um, we are, to use the, the technical term, as amillennial, okay? So just the word millennial for thousand, and then A at the beginning to say not, not millennial, not a, a, a thousand. Because we understand this thousand years symbolically. Okay. That this is the period between Jesus' ascension and, and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost and his return. We're living in the thousand years right now, for however long it should be, until Christ comes again. Okay. So then, verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. The number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So you have this picture that at the tail end of the thousand years, things get really bad, okay? When are we in that little season? When is that happening? We don't know, right? We could be in it right now. We can't say for certain, at least... From what I can tell in the scripture, there isn't a clear demarcation at that point that this is that you're in that time period. Okay, it's just things are going to get real ugly. Um, and then verse eleven. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Okay, so what does that echo? Or what, what other text does that sound like to you? 
Are there any other passages in the New Testament that that sounds like? I would say that the clearest echoes and resonances are to Matthew 25 and the, the separation of the sheep and the goats. So the idea is now you have the coming of Christ. I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it. So, then, so keep your finger there and just flip to Matthew 25. Again, going back and forth here. The sound effects for our turning of the pages. Oh, very good. All right. Um, so Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Such a tongue twister, but we got it there. Okay, so here I, I would say that what Jesus describes there is what's being described in Revelation 20 from a different vantage point or using some, some different language. That great white throne with Christ the King on the throne and from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. This is um, a, a poetical way of saying that now all creation is in tumult, basically. That every, everything is just, the, the foundations have been shaken, right? Because now the king is sitting on his throne and all the nations are gathered before him. And thus you have opening um, the, the book of life being opened, of which the Son of Man is the author of that book of life. And our names are written in it in blood. So, Matt, is that kind of... Well, I guess I'm still... In this Bible study is new to me, and, and I'm just kind of trying to see if, if the author is like conceptualizing a perfected but kind of earthly similar realm, and if, if that is squared with this, like why, why is it that here no place is found for the earth and the sky? Right. Is that supposed to be temporary, or is that more of a, um, a new order that is, is developed when, you know, um, when Christ the judgment comes. is there and right. the presence of the great white throne, which I would presume is, is Christ returning? Yes, right. Yeah, and I, and I would say that this would be a, an idea that we would want to take symbolically. And let me give you another a close, um, uh, a close ref, cross-reference with this. So just from our text that we read, just going down then um, to Revelation 21, I, he sees this new heaven and a new earth. And again, it's this um, kainos idea of a renewed heaven, a renewed earth. I see the creation renewed and restored. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Well, what does it mean to pass away? You say that somebody has passed away. What's happened to them? They've died, right? So a manner of speaking for death. So the first order of things has passed away. Death has died. Sin has died. It's passed away. And then also he says, and the sea was no more. Okay, so this is interesting. Does this mean that in the new creation, there's no use for water anymore? Well, we know just a few verses later, he's going to talk about the, the living waters. Is it that the, the sea, there's something about lakes or oceans that is inherently bad or wrong? Well, no. Um, from a biblical perspective, especially in the, the ancient world, the sea was understood as the abyss. And it was symbolic of the place of chaos. 
that out of the, the chaos, that this is where um, the, the sin and Satan and his minions kind of originate, symbolically, spiritually speaking. This is why also, and I'm sorry, I'm making connections all over the, over the place here, but this is also why it's such a big deal that Jesus tames the seas, that he calms the storms. It's not just, you know, isn't that a cool uncle trick, right, that Jesus can do that. But what that signifies is that he is the one who has the power, as it says elsewhere in Revelation, over death and Hades, right? So that when the sea is no more, it means that chaos has been curbed, that the cosmos of Christ's reign and rule now is without remainder. So, um, and in terms of the, the study map, I think he's, well, he's not trying to depict a mere earthly, a merely earthly paradise. That's more along the lines of, what gets called post-millennialism, right? And this is all things that are going to be on the test, so I hope you're taking good notes. But, um, There's some, something else. Yeah, go ahead, Bob. As the Lord from the universe, before there is earth and sky, it's just him in his glory, and then he creates a creation that reflects his glory. Yeah. Unfortunately, the nations of the earth tend to seek the creature rather than the creator. Hmm. And they worship the creation rather yep. than the creator. Right. What he's saying here is there is nothing else. You're seeing yes. him as he really is. Yes. And even the earth and sky cannot reflect who yes. this person Ah, is. that's very well put. Yep, that's right. You're seeing the real deal. You're and seeing the real deal. are now standing in front of him. The unvarnished. With yep. no nothing medi- in between. Yes, exactly. No mediation. Yeah. yeah, that's very good. Thank you. Yeah, Hans. Uh, you had said earlier that... Uh, uh, Christ, uh, Christ comes, or the dead in Christ come with them. Yeah. Is that saying that the people who don't have Christ are someplace else? Right. So yeah, I mean, um, this. So are you re- referencing that First Thessalonians four? Yeah. So First Thessalonians four doesn't get into what about those who aren't of Christ, right? We have to take that from from other places. But what we have, the resurrection applies not just to the just, but also to the unjust, right? right? And we confess this in the creed, too. It will um, come to raise the... Yeah, so this is the, this is the second death. So sticking there in Revelation 20, um, it, it goes on to say the sea gave up the dead. Of course it's the sea that gave up the dead. This is verse 13, that place of, of chaos. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay. So that second death, then, is the, etern- the eternal judgment, right? And that separation from God in hell. Yeah. Yeah. Can we end on a happy note? Okay. Um, oh, sorry. So, um, in your opinion, or from uh, N.T. Wright, so why was there this sort of uh, separating, you know, the, the, it was all about going to heaven and not about the second coming? Yeah. Is that like a Gnostic type thing where the, the body's evil and creation's evil, and so right. you want to escape it? Right. And because you're basically making the point, it's like this has been a perversion of, yes. of, of the real second coming, and we need to understand this, really truly understand what it means to be a Christian. Right, yeah, right. But, but, like, but, but why? Is, I mean, is it, is it, you know, obviously it changed. You said, you know, 
the hymns, when this first was created, right. would have been played and would have said about the older version. And right. All of a sudden, was it just because things got worse and people were like, I can't imagine God forgiving this place. Right. No, I mean. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place. Yeah. And a mansion. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds very place. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's the John 14 text again. So first um, to, to Chip's question, I mean, it's that historical question of what happened over the last couple hundred years that the nature and the understanding of salvation become, became much more Gnostic, to use kind of the technical theological vocabulary. In other words, more divorced from the body. And it wasn't the case that things were getting worse. If anything, they were getting better, right? You're coming out of the Middle Ages when you had plague after plague and life was miserable in many ways. And so, you know, in the last couple hundred years, it's like, no, things, things have been going pretty good. So why at that point is there now this introduction, this idea of, okay, we're, we're escaping this. And I, I don't have a, a conclusive answer for you historically. Yeah, uh, I think that there's probably different... Um, different reasons and trends that, that factored into it. But what you can document historically is this movement from a more robust resurrection, second coming theology to more of a, you know, part of it, I think, and he kind of alluded to this, is that interiorizing of the faith. So it's less of, of a, a public, physical thing that happens in the world, but instead it's more just interior. Of course, the interior is part of it, but it's not the, the full thing. But um, no, I... Yeah, I, I can't give a conclusive answer to that. Um, okay, so John 14 then. Go, go to that, because this is the, uh, another key passage um, in this. Um, we're going kind of long, so if you need to, to skedaddle, um, I take no offense, uh, but I, I do want to just kind of get through this la- last part of it here. All right, so John 14, the context here is this is the, what's called the upper room discourse. This is happening on Monday, Thursday, the night before um, Jesus' death. He says, John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, have told you, would, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. All right. So, um, Sandy, you're kind of asking, how does this fit in with that overall kind of just schema of heaven and the resurrection? Yeah. Yeah. Separate place versus... Right. Good. Okay, so there's a couple different ways to read this. And I think John may intend in, in placing this how he does both of them. So first of all, as I mentioned, this is happening on Maundy Thursday. This is before Jesus has died. So when we read this on this side of the resurrection, our first thought when he says, I'm going, uh, if it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. We hear that immediately as second coming language. But in that first initial context, he's going to die. And through his death and his resurrection, he is preparing the place for us, right? So there's, the, there's that first layer in which to read and to hear this, to understand it, is Christ is talking about what's going to happen that very weekend, his death and his resurrection, and that through that, he is preparing us 
um, for eternity. Okay? Um, but then secondly, I think there is that second layer then where we can't help but hear this uh, but referring to the parousia and the, the second coming of Christ. And here I think that it's appropriate to connect this with that 1 Thessalonians 4 text. So if you read it that way, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Okay. So is there a way to read that where we just understand that to mean you know, heaven and kind of the, the interim state? Yeah, I think you can hear it that way. But um, more fully, the place that he is preparing is the new creation that is yet to, uh, to still come. Yeah. Something important, too, and I think it's in Luke that he says, was I not supposed to be in my father's house? Yes. So the father's house is actually, if you will, metaphor for temple. Right. And remember all the rooms in the temple in yeah. which the priests dwell? Yeah. He's saying, I have a place for you in my kingdom. Yes. We've taken it literally. I have a, house, a mansion yes. in heaven. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's really meant you are dwelling with me where I dwell. Yep. And that, that material, that's spiritual, the whole enchilada, but the fact is, is I have a place for you in where I rule my kingdom, and that's the Father's house. Yeah, and so this is a statement not just about eternal destination, it's a statement about temporal mission, that you have a, a place and a role. So that, remember what Jesus says, on that res he, he rises, he meets them, and he says, peace be with you, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Now go out. You've got this place in the Father's kingdom. You have this place. Uh, you've got a room as a, a, a priest uh, of the Father now to go out and to um, to bring others in. Yeah, yeah. It strikes me this time for the first time as a way that you might explain something to a small child in a very concrete mm. way. Yeah, right. Um, and uh, there was so much that they didn't understand. Yes. Then. And, what's the, and what is the upshot that Jesus really wants them to take away? There's what, a place for you. Well, there's a, pl there's a place for you, and who is that place with? It's with me. It's with me. Back to what um, Esther said to start with. Like the, the focus is, you're going to be with me, guys. It's going to be scary. Let me try to explain this a little bit. But the point is, where I am, you may be also. See, you don't have to, you don't have to worry. How do we get there? I am the way and the truth and the life. Okay? That's it. Yeah, Janet. Even on earth, when we go through the toughest of times, yeah. Christ has already been there to prepare that place for us. That's exactly right. To give us what we need to survive it. That's exactly right. He's been there before. He's been through it, and he is there to go with us through it. All right. So much here, guys. Um, let me say 30 seconds. Last two thoughts. One, number four, was that as he tried to show judgment as part of this good news too because it's about God bringing his justice and sorting out all the ways that this world has, has gone wrong and been broken. The rivers will clap their hands. The hills will sing together for joy when he comes for he comes to judge the earth, to set it, as the British people would say, to put it to rights. All right, they put it to rights. Then, finally, that the Holy Spirit, whom we have received, is a foretaste of that future. So to what Bob was saying from Acts, you receive that power from the Holy Spirit, and now there's that centrifugal power of the Holy Spirit that we are sent out from the center to go out and to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Arcadia, Bear Lake, Joyfield, wherever we are found. We have that foretaste. 
And so the question I want you to, to take with you this week as you go is how can we as a church, as Christians, as temples of the Holy Spirit, ourselves be foretastes of God's glorious future? As I read one author put it this week, we're not called to be a force, but to be a taste. How can we be a taste of God's kingdom in the future yet to come? All right, thanks for sticking around for a, an extended version of Bible study today. We'll wrap it up next week.